Well, our speaker has already been introduced uh, last night, so I don't have to say too much about him. But it's very interesting that this is the 10th anniversary of the John Owenson. We have the <coughs> meeting on the 25th of October, 1999. And uh, the guest speaker was Dr. Sinclair. I don't know if you remember that. Just. <laughs> and um, he has uh, changed his address a few times since then <laughs> and so we're glad we've caught up with him again and he's able to be with us here this afternoon well thank you so much Philip for your introduction I remember first time I ever came to anything in London years and years ago and I saw uh, people like Robert and Philip and uh, they seemed very settled and everybody knew them and, uh, they seemed among the senior men and uh, now I, I, one of the great <laughs> encouragements of coming to this conference is now one goes to so many conferences and uh, you wonder where are those older men that used to be at these conferences and now you realize you're actually one of them <laughs> so to be able to see these brothers uh, these two days has meant a great deal to me um, and I want to thank them for the invitation to come and to be part of the conference, which seems to me anyway to have been a very happy conference, um, great spirit, and uh, until this point, until this juncture, wonderful papers, um, and, uh, uh, and a tremendous encouragement personally to me to be able to be part of it. And, um, now the, is payback time for the privilege of giving the Martin Lloyd-Jones Memorial Lecture, which is a privilege, is that you get the after-lunch session on the last day of the conference. And perhaps it's with that in mind that the organizers have uh, kept this subject of Calvin on the Holy Spirit to this particular juncture. And I don't want in any way to disappoint them and so I will deal here, uh, uh, as far as I'm able, with one, two points of the more controversial aspects of Calvin's teaching on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I say that just to keep you awake until I actually get to them. I imagine if you had been at a conference on Calvin's theology uh, 100 years ago, 125 years ago, uh, actually, you would have been at a relatively rare thing. Um, his anniversaries were celebrated, but conferences, I think, on Calvin's theology were relatively rare. It would have been fairly amazing to have seen among the topics for discussion, unless they were a fairly refined group of people who believed the gospel and had come to understand Calvin's teaching. It would be pretty rare to find a paper on Calvin and the Holy Spirit. Indeed, when B.B. Warfield wrote a hundred years ago that John Calvin is the theologian of the Holy Spirit, he must have seemed to so many people who bothered to read him to be like a voice crying in the wilderness. But this, in fact, is a judgment that seems to me to be very readily vindicated in a number of different ways. Partly because the ministry of the Spirit receives great emphasis 
in Calvin's theology. You would extrapolate that from the fact that he was a profoundly Trinitarian theologian. And not simply Trinitarian in name, but Trinitarian in instinct. And so as he works his way through biblical revelation, he has an emphasis on the place of the Holy Spirit in creation and in the governing of the universe, in regular providence and in special providence. He has, of course, as we have already seen, a special place for the ministry of the Spirit in connection with the giving of Scripture and the authentication of Scripture to believers. He has some very valuable things to say about the ministry of the Spirit in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in many ways, that is a very central thing to his theology. He majors on the notion that the Holy Spirit is the bond of union between Jesus Christ and the church, the individual believer and the Lord Jesus Christ, and is instrumental in the application of the redemption that Christ has accomplished. And he has emphasis in his commentaries and in the institutes, not least on the Holy Spirit as the key to our communion with the Lord Jesus not least the key to our communion with the Lord Jesus in the communion service as we share together in the Holy Eucharist, as he might have said. Now, this is not to argue that the Holy Spirit is the central motif in Calvin's theology. But it is true that he not only emphasizes the ministry of the Holy Spirit, in many areas of his theology, the thing that's perhaps even more obvious is that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is simply all-pervasive in Calvin's theology. It's one of the most obvious things that people with a critical eye might comment on on the Institutes, that you seem to have a section that deals with the work of the Father, certainly a section that deals with the person and work of Jesus Christ, but not apparently a distinct locus of theology under the title of the Holy Spirit and his work. There may be a reason for that. It may be the way in which Calvin understood the principle that the Holy Spirit doesn't bring glory to himself, but to the Father and to the Son. But whether that be true or not, the, the thing is that the Holy Spirit is simply pervasive throughout the whole encyclopedia of Calvin's thought and uh, if he thinks of the Spirit's ministry as a non-reflective ministry there is really no part of his theological construction that isn't pervaded with references to the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit and in that sense Calvin paves the way for later evangelical theology uh, one needs to read Calvin in context of course to understand why Warfield said he was the theologian of the Holy Spirit but there is no doubt whatsoever no doubt whatsoever that of all the reformers John Calvin was the one who as it were bequeathed to the evangelical tradition particularly for us in the English speaking world the tremendous significance the ministry of the Spirit has in the life of the Christian believer and one can trace that impact in a very profound way again a pervasive way 
in the teaching of the Scottish reformers and of course also in the teaching of the English Puritans. Now I think it will help us to understand what Calvin is saying about the ministry of the Spirit in the Christian life if we creep up on the subject just a little and we remember both the polemical and the theological context in which he is writing. The polemical context in which he writes about the Holy Spirit is on the one hand the necessity of his ministry to deal with the failures in Roman Catholic theology. As I hinted at yesterday evening in the Roman Church, the application of salvation for the regular church member, as it were, was locked up in the institutions of the church. From that point of view, the magisterium of the church had robbed the Holy Spirit of his ministry as the one who authenticates the truth of Scripture. The reformers argued the Scriptures are not given to us by the church. They come to the church. They are given to us by the ministry of the Spirit. And since only God can give fit testimony to himself, as Calvin says, quoting Hilary of Poitiers, so in the same way, the medieval church had robbed the Holy Spirit of one of his great offices. And as again we saw in measure yesterday, Calvin felt so much that he had to deal with that. But not only so, also in terms of what I mentioned yesterday evening, the church had replaced the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the application of redemption with the sacramental system and a distorted view of justification in which in a, in a kind of uh, inconsistent graph-like way the ordinary Christian might hope to move from first justification through the sacrament of baptism through the various sacraments that would sustain him in life to this far off and virtually unreachable hope that one day he would be a righteous man or woman whom God would be able to justify. And within that system you understand why it was that the Roman Catholic Church accused the reformers of teaching a justification by free grace that was actually a legal fiction. It was the justification of somebody who wasn't justifiable. How one of the things that the reformers want to emphasize is that the justification of the justification of the ungodly is found in the justification of Jesus Christ. And for Calvin, the great ministry of the Holy Spirit is to unite us to that Jesus Christ in whom, simultaneously, justification is realized and sanctification begins. And so, I think we could say um, that among the neglected solas of the Reformation, the solus spiritus is one of Calvin's great emphases. Not only justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, testified in scripture alone, but brought to us by the Spirit alone, to the glory of God alone. Not to have solus spiritus would be to demean the divine trinity in the application of redemption. 
Well, if the first aspect of Calvin's polemic deals with the way in which the Roman church replaced the spirit by the sacramental system, on the other hand, because he was fighting with weapons for the right hand and weapons for the left hand, the second polemical aspect that runs through Calvin's teaching involves those who, in his estimation, divided the spirit from the word. Sectarian groups, the so-called spirituals, who have in their characteristics some of the marks of Christian groups that we have seen again in the 20th and 21st century that Wesley and Whitfield saw and the French prophets that appeared again and again in the history of the Christian church among the Puritans, among the more extreme of the Quakers. Separating the spirit from the word and emphasizing that God reveals himself through the spirit apart from the word. And so Calvin speaks about them in his commentary on the Acts of the Apostles in chapter 10. And he warns us against these people who engage in what he calls deadly dotings, wherein brain-sick fellows enwrap themselves, while forsaking the word they invent an erroneous and wandering spirit. And this is one of the reasons why there is a kind of refrain runs through Calvin's teaching, and it really is everywhere, that the spirit is never to be separated from Christ, that the spirit is never to be separated from the word. And so in 1545, he writes his tract against the fantastic and furious sect of the libertines called spirituals. And one of the telltale signs of them is, as Calvin says, uh, they can scarcely speak two sentences without referring to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit taught me. The Spirit prompted me. The Spirit revealed to me. The Spirit led me on. And Calvin sees that as a distortion of biblical language, as a confusion of the Spirit's ministry. And also that in those contexts, that which is seen as a mark of higher spiritual maturity is actually a sign of spiritual neuroticism. It severs the Spirit from the Word. And so Calvin wants to emphasize the close union of the Father with the Son, the Son with the Spirit, the triune God with the Word, the Spirit with the Word, and by the ministry of all three persons of the Godhead, by the means and instrument of the Word and the sacraments, bring us into a genuine union and communion with Jesus Christ. So much for the polemical background. A word about the theological background, or perhaps foreground, would be a better word. Calvin, of course, emphasizes in the Institutes the deity of the Spirit as a given of Christian theological tradition. The Spirit is a person, he says, of the divine essence. He is a distinct center of personal existence within the single essence of the being of God. And he traces the way in which the Spirit shows his divinity in participation in creation and providence in sending prophets in the way in which they speak under his inspiration, in the way in which they claim to speak the very words of God himself. And he delights to think of Paul's teaching particularly 
about that divine knowledge which the Holy Spirit has himself of God. God who is known exhaustively only to himself. The deep things of God are known by the Holy Spirit. And this is why when the New Testament speaks of believers corporately or individually as the temple or temples of God because they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. There is an inherent logic in those statements that implies the absolute deity of the divine essence in the person of the Holy Spirit. In the baptismal formula, so often for Calvin, in a sense, diverted to the notion of baptism without reference to the Trinity. The baptismal formula is there to teach those who are baptized how at last in redemptive history God has taught us to pronounce his name. And his name is now no longer pronounced Yahweh. Whatever some Old Testament scholars teaching in theological seminaries wish to insist, his name is now pronounced Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The unity of the name implies the unity of the persons in the Godhead and the absolute deity of the Spirit within the fellowship of the triune God. It follows actually, I think, by parity of reasoning that since Calvin in his very distinctive way argues for the autotheistic nature of the Son, that is to say, the Son's deity is not derived from the deity of the Father. The Son and the Father share together in one and the same deity. The Father is not the author of the deity of the Son. And it follows by parity of reasoning that Calvin also thinks of the autotheistic nature of the Holy Spirit. His deity is not a derived deity. It is not his deity that proceeds from the Father and from the Son. He is himself very God of very God. But because the Spirit is in common to both the Father and the Son, who have one essence with him and the same eternal deity, says Calvin commenting on Romans 8, 9, the Spirit is as really the Spirit of the Son as he is the Spirit of the Father. And for this reason, Calvin understands not only in terms of a theological motif, but especially in terms of a soteriological motif, that the Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son in terms of the internal union and communion of the Trinity. And therefore, because of that, because of that, is sent to the church, to believers, at the day of Pentecost and thereafter, from both the Father and the Son. And it's in this way that for Calvin, the so-called opera ad extra trinitatis principle, in its indivisibility, operates for the life of the believer. Get the Father and you get the Son and the Spirit. Get the Son and you get the Father and the Spirit. Get the Spirit and you get the Father and the Son. The Trinity 
is indivisible in all of its activities outside of the Trinity, even although, yes, for Calvin, there are appropriations to each person of the Trinity of that external relationship to the universe. And so Calvin traces the role of the Spirit, not only in creation, the role of the Spirit in his ministry in the Old Testament. You remember how he works in the Institutes on the contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament in, uh, in Book 2, Chapter 11. But then so much wants to emphasize that one and the same Spirit ministered to the saints under the Old Covenant, bringing them to redemption in Jesus Christ as the Holy Spirit, who having ministered on and through Jesus Christ, now brings the consummation of that redemption to believers in the present era. Whether under the law or under the fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is the agent of the application of the work of Jesus Christ. Calvin understands John's statement in John chapter 1. The law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ not as a severance of two dispensations with two different agents of the application of redemption, but two dispensations of one and the same redemptive historical purpose in both of those dispensations. And if the word concerns you, why should the dispensationalists have all the best words? In both dispensations, the Holy Spirit, applies the work of Jesus Christ to those who believe in him, seeing him opaquely in terms of promise, or to ourselves, who are as far removed from the death of Jesus and the shedding of his blood as Abraham. The Holy Spirit, and this is a recurring theme in more than one context with Calvin, the Holy Spirit, as it were, bridges the gap in space and time between the historical accomplishment of our Lord Jesus Christ's saving ministry and the way in which, in light of that saving ministry, which has not been repeated since Calvary, in light of that once and for all saving ministry, God justifies sinners and transforms them gloriously into saints. And so, for Calvin, the Holy Spirit is at work through the Old Covenant. The Holy Spirit's ministry comes to a marvelous consummation in the New Covenant. He gives the Scriptures, and now he, as it were, opens the eyes of our understanding to this great drama of redemptive history, in order that how this is for us and how it becomes ours is realized in the life of the Christian believer. So against that background, I want to draw out from Calvin's teaching, uh, and there is, through the door of the Holy Spirit, there's actually a way into all of Calvin's teaching, but I want to draw out four particular themes that uh, Calvin, it seems to me, emphasizes in different ways about the Spirit's ministry in the life of the Christian believer. Let me tell you what they are. Uh, first of all, 
uh, and uh, I'll denote the Spirit in these terms. The ministry of the Spirit is the Spirit of illumination. Second, the ministry of the Spirit as, the, as a ministry of regeneration. Thirdly, the ministry of the Spirit as the Spirit of adoption. And fourthly, the ministry of the Spirit as the Spirit of communion, illumination, regeneration, adoption, and communion. And the lines, the dividing lines between these four things are really very, very thin indeed. These are like tributaries feeding into one marvelous unity in Calvin's thinking. Now we heard yesterday, didn't we, helpfully about Calvin's teaching about the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit. How the Spirit who has given Scripture to us is the one who convinces us of the truth of Scripture. And how he does this not by getting us to stand outside of Scripture. Even when Calvin speaks about the indicia of Scripture that give us a kind of persuasion that this is really a very special book. Um, some of which, as Tony Lane said yesterday, raise your eyebrows a little. Um, don't impress us in the 21st century the way they may, or perhaps they may not have impressed people in the 16th century. But the key thing is that for Calvin, you don't stand outside of Scripture in order to be convinced of Scripture. Which is why, essentially for Calvin, the methodology of bringing people to be persuaded of the truth of Scripture is not the use of rational arguments about Scripture standing outside of Scripture, but by men and women reading Scripture. And as they read the Scriptures, the Scriptures are illumined to them by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit uses the very Scriptures that people are reading in order to persuade people these really are the scriptures of God. Just why so often, if I may make a pastoral point, one of the things we need to do more often with people instead of arguing about it in a rational way is simply to encourage them to go and read the book for themselves. Because we find so many people who have rejected the whole idea that the scriptures are the word of God and instead of arguing with them, you say to them, don't you? Which of them have you been reading recently? And it's actually a relatively rare thing to find somebody who has rejected the Scriptures as the Word of God, who knows very much about the Scriptures. To me, it's a very striking thing to see that that methodology, if we could allow that language about Calvin is so pastorally useful. That's actually what saved J. Gresham Machen's sanity. Incidentally, when he was studying under Hermann, who had such a bowl-you-over influence on Karl Barth. And Machen tells us how he went back to his room and he read through the Gospels and he realized, however amazing this individual Hermann was speaking about, he was neither the Jesus of history nor the Christ of faith and he certainly wasn't the saviour in the Bible. And the scriptures themselves through the ministry of the Spirit persuaded this inward persuasion and certainty, certainty that the Holy Spirit 
gives to us, not as Tony Lane was helping us to understand yesterday by, by little voices that we hear, but out of itself. We are constrained to believe that Scripture is the very voice of God, and we give to it, as Calvin says, the reverence that we give to God himself because it is the very word of God. Now that whole process of the Spirit's ministry of illumination is clearly for Calvin a ministry that goes beyond the mere noetic. Oh, this is the Bible, this is the word of God. It goes beyond the informative. For Calvin, illumination doesn't just mean, oh, now I see it. It means, oh, now I yield to it. And you can sense this coming out of his own experience, stubbornly addicted to the papacy. And now as the scriptures uh, are opened to him by the Holy Spirit, that addiction is yielding to a greater authority than the authority of the church and the authority of his own prejudice. So inner illumination does not substitute for external and objective revelation. In fact, it is impossible apart from it. Because for Calvin, you must never separate the Spirit from the Word, precisely because the Spirit gave the Word in order that he might illumine the Word, in order that he might break down the stubborn prejudices of the mind, that he might deal with that Mind that, as Calvin says, is a perpetual factory of idols and go about a demolition process, even as the light enters into the mind from the teaching of the Scriptures. And for Calvin, of course, the paradigm of all this is the experience of the disciples on the road to Emmaus and on that little group uh, that they met later on in the day when the Lord Jesus returned to them and opened the scriptures and caused their hearts to burn. So this is the great paradigm of illumination and actually, and this brings us on to the second thing, it's the paradigm of regeneration. The spirit enlightens the mind. The spirit reveals Christ. And the Spirit subdues the heart and causes the heart to burn. So that being convinced of the Scriptures in this particular way is not a, in the pejorative sense, merely a scholastic conviction. Oh, you are right, this is the Word of God. The testimony of the Holy Spirit for Calvin is so intertwined with the realization of the gospel in our lives that it is virtually indistinguishable from actual regeneration. This kind of conviction that the scriptures are the voice of God involve for Calvin not just noetic assent but personal consent. And so the spirit who is the spirit of illumination is also necessarily the spirit of regeneration, which brings us to the second point. He is the spirit of regeneration. 
Now, a comment here about Calvin's use of the term regeneration. Those of you who are familiar with the chapter headings in the Institutes and their ardor um, will almost all, I'm sure, have been struck by the fact that nobody would write a book on the application of redemption these days unless they shared Calvin's insights in that particular order. Calvin essentially deals with sanctification before he deals with justification. Calvin amazingly uses this phrase, regeneration by faith. Let me repeat that, in case you're just falling asleep. Regeneration by faith. Now if you're a modern Calvinist, if you're a modern Calvinist, that's Arminian language. Isn't that what Billy Graham teaches? You come to faith in Jesus Christ and God gives you the gift of the new birth. So there's clearly something going on in book three of the Institutes that uh, takes just a little moment to try and, and get your head around. Actually, there are several things going on. Only this one interests us at the moment. And it's this. Well, two things. Let me say two things. <laughs> Number one, part of Calvin's motivation in putting the Christian life before he deals with justification is surely to, to demonstrate that there is no such thing as a justified man who isn't also a sanctified man. Not a glorified man or a perfected man. But there is no such thing as a justification that exists without sanctification. And so this whole idea that if you teach free justification by grace, people will live any way they want, is a fabrication of perverse minds. It doesn't fit with what Calvin and the Reformers are saying. But the second thing, and this is the important thing for our point here, is that clearly Calvin in line with the early reformers, uses the categories of theological language in a somewhat different way from the way in which we customarily use them today. So, for example, for Calvin, regeneration comes through faith. It is repentance, and repentance is mortification and vivification, which is both internal and external. In a word or two, Calvin has a much more unified idea of what happens in regeneration than later theologians who tend to speak about regeneration as a, a point, a beginning point in the Christian life. And sometimes, sadly, theologians who speak about repentance as a beginning point in the Christian life. Oh yes, I repented 20 years ago. Now I'm on to something else. No, no, says Calvin, agreeing with Luther. When in Luther's first thesis, he, he says, when Jesus said, repent, he meant the whole Christian life should be repentance. And it's this notion, actually it's this notion alone that enables us to make sense of some of the things that Calvin writes. For example, in his discussion in John 1.13, those who believed in him, he became the right to become the children of God who were born, etc., etc. And he says there, regeneration precedes faith and regeneration follows faith. Well, does Calvin speak? White man from Geneva speak with forked tongue. 
No, he means that the regenerating activity of God the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential to the birth of faith in our lives. That sovereign ministry of illumination through the word of God, conviction of its truth, inflaming of the heart. That's not something that's worked up. That's something that comes down. We must be born from above. But that divine regeneration which is sovereignly inaugurated is something that is continued in the Christian life by the way of faith. Because what Calvin is interested in here is ultimately the regeneration of all things. And the way in which my individual regeneration that leads me from condemnation and wrath under sin to final Christ-likeness and glorification is an ongoing process in the Christian life that doesn't as it were take place over my head as though I were an automaton but takes place in my life so that I actually engage as a person who is being regenerated and is actually becoming new in all of the activity of his life and if you read Calvin's commentaries uh, Calvin's commentary on John's Gospel, John 1, chapter 13. You'll notice, I think, very clearly that this is how he understands what regeneration is. And what happens in this renewal, what the Holy Spirit does, in essence, is to unite us by faith, illumined by the Holy Spirit, to the Lord Jesus Christ the incarnate one now crucified, buried raised, ascended and reigning at the right hand of the Father so that we share in Christ as we were being reminded yesterday by participation participatio in Christos great expression that Calvin delights to use in fact this is such a big thing for Calvin. There are, there are places you'll notice in Calvin's commentaries where he'll say things like, I prefer to say in Christ rather than through Christ. And that just that little incidental statement carries a world of uh, important illumination for Calvin. That we don't gain the blessings of the Christian gospel merely through Christ Christ is there the blessings come through he hands the blessings on to us and we walk away with the blessings that actually is all too common a way of presenting the nature of the Christian life no, Calvin's quite deliberate about this and, and he gives no explanation he just kind of throws it off but I think this is the explanation I'd rather we translate it here in Christ rather than through Christ because again, as we were being reminded yesterday, and marvellous how these various addresses have all flowed into one another, there must have been a great mastermind planning this conference. That what you need to get is Jesus Christ. What you need to get is Jesus Christ. Not justification, not regeneration, not sanctification, not glorification, not adoption. None of these things is the object of the faith of the newborn child. Faith 
through the Holy Spirit so unites us to the person of Jesus Christ in this as we saw yesterday this mystical but very real union not with a mystical Christ and this is so important for Calvin the spirit doesn't come to us from a mystical Christ but from an incarnate crucified buried, raised ascended glorified Christ still retaining and forever retaining our humanity that's the one with whom we are united we are not united for Calvin to the Holy Spirit we are united by the Holy Spirit to the person of our Lord Jesus Christ and in some way this is the I think the key to all that Calvin does in book 3 of the Institutes and in so many places in his writings this is his key understanding of the role of the Holy Spirit the role of the Holy Spirit is to bring us to union with the Lord Jesus to keep us in that union and to have that union flourish in the most blessed communion with Jesus Christ he puts this marvelously if I remember rightly in my memory stick that's got Calvin in it didn't function on the computer I brought so I am speaking from memory here when he, when he works in his thinking about those words of Paul about uh, how the, the sufferings of Christ flow over onto his body in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and he sees Psalm 133 as the background to that the oil, the anointing oil flowing over Aaron's head onto his beard onto onto all that representation that Aaron was of all people of God. Calvin is saying this is how the anointing works. The anointing first of all comes upon the head, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then as it were, all that the Holy Spirit as it were gathers up as that oil flows over Jesus Christ is brought down into the body so that Christian believers who are regenerated are regenerated to participate in Jesus Christ and this for, for Calvin too many things to say about this but one thing I mustn't neglect to say this union with the Lord Jesus that comes through the Holy Spirit involves what Calvin calls mortification and vivification and that mortification and vivification are twofold. There is an external mortification and an internal mortification. There is an external vivification and there is an internal vivification. And you see what he's saying. He's saying just as we are united by the Spirit to whole Christ, we are united to whole Christ as whole individuals. And so what the Spirit is working in us as he conforms us to the Lord Jesus, as he brings to bear upon us who this Jesus is, is a mortification to sin that takes place in the Christian life, but also a mortification of the body. Not just a mortification of the flesh in the pejorative use of sarks, but actually this body unless the Lord returns will die and also a, a vivification of the spirit in regeneration 
but not just a vivification of the spirit, a vivification of my whole being in the resurrection. When, as Paul says at the end of Philippians 3, the Lord Jesus will change my body from its state of humiliation to be like his body of glory. So the spirit does not unite us to spirit in order that the end we may become disembodied spirit. The spirit unites us to the incarnate Son of God in our flesh, Jesus Christ. Patterns his ministry by the word, by providence, into our lives in such a way. And you can see here how uh, Calvin is driven by Philippians 3 uh, and driven by 2 Corinthians 4. So that this death and life pattern is both inward and outward. And this is the ministry of the spirit of regeneration. The seed of it, as it were, is given at the very beginning of the Christian life and flows through the whole. Thirdly, and uh, it looks as though I've left only a few minutes for the more controversial matters. Thirdly, Calvin speaks about the spirit as the spirit of adoption. And fascinatingly, uh, you remember how in, in uh, Institutes 3.1.3 he has this little section on the titles or names of the Holy Spirit and he has this um, I don't know when I read this first uh, and I've probably read it more than once before it startled me he says the first title of the Holy Spirit is Spirit of Adoption clearly he doesn't mean that in a redemptive historical sense You've got to go a long way reading your Bible before you get to the title Spirit of Sonship. So he's saying this is the primary description in the Bible. Now you may agree or you may disagree. Calvin agreed. He believed that the single most important name that was given to the Holy Spirit was Spirit of Sonship. Because, and this is not so clear I think because he doesn't make this a locus, because sonship was the quintessential perspective that he had on what it meant to be a Christian. To be an adopted child of God. And it's because he has this, this amazing emphasis on the fatherhood of God. I think it was possibly Dumerc who first drew my attention to that. Amazing. I was scuttering around years and years ago. Somebody had written something about Calvin's understanding of the fatherhood of God and our adoptive sonship. And this is his great emphasis that the father brings us into his family and therefore we are brought into his family to be sons. And so contrary to what we were hearing yesterday, not contrary to what we were hearing, but contrary to that about which we were hearing yesterday, it is one of the most paradoxical things that in any reformed community there should be a diminution of assurance that you are a child of God. What father in the world would ordinarily want to bring his children up not being sure they really were his children? But where does this idea of fatherhood come from? I mean the idea of fatherhood. It comes from God the Father. And this for Calvin was a, obviously a glorious liberation. I mean, in a sense, this was Calvin's parallel 
to Luther's discovery of what justification really meant. That actually this God who was righteous, whom he'd come to hate, the very word righteousness, by that righteousness justified sinners. And for Calvin, that this God wanted to be his father, and therefore wanted Calvin to be assured that he really was a child of God. Now, I was going to say a great deal about the background to this, and about the foreground to this, and about the upground and the downground around this, but let me just simply say this. This is why Calvin says in Institutes 327 that we possess a right definition of faith only when we think of faith as a sure and certain knowledge of God's, in parenthesis, fatherly benevolence toward us. Now this is where I was going to enter into the controversy which I don't have time to deal with now. But I think it's important for us to remember what Calvin is saying there. Not least because of the controversy that sometimes surrounds putting these words down alongside the words in the Westminster Confession of Faith that assurance does not so belong to our salvation but that believers may struggle. Now, here's the point I want to make. Calvin is defining faith. He is not describing the Christian life. And he says it quite clearly, and I think the chapter makes it abundantly plain. He's saying, here is my definition of faith. He reminds me of Jabam, who none of you would have a privilege to know. Jabam was a science master, a chemist master, in the school I went to. Um, actually, he was a Christian man. Um, J.B.O. McNair. Unhappily, those initials spell Jabam. And at least, you know, in 19... What year am I talking about? Somebody help me here, Ian. What year am I talking about? I'm talking about 1959. This is how science was taught if you were a little boy in a a secondary school in Glasgow, Scotland. First of all, boys, write down the definition. So here's the definition. Then you describe the experiment. Then you do the experiment. Jabam was aptly named. None of his experiments ever did what the definition said. (laughs) The experiment only works in, you know, it's like these guys round round cities at 130 miles an hour. You know, this this is done on a closed course by professional drivers. There's a difference between the definition and the experiment. And Calvin takes much of the rest of the chapter to say, that's my definition of faith. Faith is, in its essence, a joyful assurance. Of course it is, because it has Jesus Christ in its sights and nothing else. But then Calvin goes on to say, nobody experiences it this way. Why? Because we're living in the experimental laboratory of the Christian life. And there we find not definitions, but um, two dialectics, if I can pick up that very helpful way of thinking about some of the things Calvin does. Dialectic number one is the dialectic between the already and the not yet. 
This definition of faith is being worked out in a life that experiences the joy of the already, but not the consummation of the not yet. And then what Calvin actually emphasizes, this reality of faith is being worked out in the context of the conflict between the flesh and the spirit. And within that conflict of the flesh and the spirit, as paradoxically the Westminster divines go on to say, faith prevails and grows up and we triumph in Jesus Christ. So I think it's important for us as we think about the spirit as the spirit of adoptive sonship, assuring us that we are the children of God, that that ministry takes place not in the isolated cocoon where the definition is written, but as Calvin makes clear, in the nitty-gritty of the Christian life. And from that point of view, Calvin's chapter on faith and assurance, a tremendous help to point Christian people who struggle with assurance to. Well, that brings me finally um, uh, to the uh, notion that the spirit is a spirit of communion. Uh, just before finally, that's a Pauline finally. That's this is Romans 8.23 for Calvin, isn't it? We are the adopted children. We have the witness of the spirit of sonship. We cry, Abba, Father. And yet we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for what? For the adoption of sons. The finalization. That day and place where the definition will work out absolutely perfectly. And all will have prizes. And all will be top of the class. Well, the spirit of communion. Oh my, so much to say about this. But let me just say this one thing because, uh, and I know I'm sounding like a, 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 a person who's only got one string in his guitar. Um, and as a person who actually can't play the guitar no matter how many strings it might have. This for Calvin is how the Lord's Supper fits into his theology. This is why Calvin is so emphatic in his thinking. Now, on the one hand, he's got Luther and he's got Zwingli, and he's post-Luther and Zwingli in his thinking. He, he's conscious of that. Uh, he's very conscious of what he's doing. But what he says happens in the Lord's Supper. And if I can put it just a little provocatively, nobody believed more in the real presence of the real Jesus at the Lord's Supper than John Calvin. Calvin did not want to yield the real presence of Jesus Christ in the Lord's Supper. And he describes that in ways that have um, turned the heads of some of the best Reformed theologians. He's speaking about, about power being communicated to us from the flesh of Jesus Christ. Now, the key to that, it's really back to where I started, it's this. There isn't anywhere else for power to come from than the flesh of Jesus Christ. If naked deity sends power to you, you're a dead man. We don't know naked deity. We know Jesus Christ, deity clothed in our humanity. 
the resources for the transformation of our lives are to be found only in the incarnate Savior, nowhere else. If I can put it this way, there is nothing else the Spirit can do. He has no other resources to bring to us than those resources that actually come from the incarnate one, from his incarnate flesh as the second man and the last Adam, incarnate, obedient, crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, ascended, glorified, and coming again in majesty. And the thing, if I can, if I can put it this way, I know it sounds like the title of a bad book written in probably 1984. What Calvin believes the ministry of the Holy Spirit does is to bring us to the real Jesus because there isn't any other Jesus with whom we can have communion. Or if I can put it just a little provocatively, although I hope Calvinian, at the Lord's Supper, it's not the Holy Spirit with whom you have communion. It's Jesus with whom you have communion. Now the twist for Calvin is you don't get that communion here because he's not here. He's there. And so if you're going to have communion with Jesus at the Lord's Supper you need to get from here to there. And just as the role of the Holy Spirit in bringing us salvation in the first place is as it were, if I can put it this way to close the space-time gap that every single person who has ever believed in Jesus except those who were contemporaneously trusting him on the cross and in his resurrection for every single person in the entire history of the Christian church the Holy Spirit has been closing that gap in space and time and bringing us to a Jesus who is ascended and glorified that we might trust in him not in the story about him but in him himself and this is why for Calvin at the Lord's Supper the source and corda is so important lift up your hearts we lift them up to you O Lord why would Calvin insist on that? Because all true communion with Christ as all true worship of Christ as Calvin would contend is not merely earthly it's heavenly. And so by the mystery by the true mysticism of the Spirit's work the Spirit lifts us as it were to heaven and there we find the incarnate Christ and have communion with him. All of this is to say that Calvin's teaching on the Holy Spirit is embedded in Calvin's teaching about the person and work of the Lord Jesus. So I close with the perhaps my favorite words in the Institutes from Book 2, Chapter 16, Section 19. We see that our whole salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore take care not to derive the least portion of it from anywhere else. If we seek salvation, we are taught by the very name of Jesus that it is of him. If we seek any other gifts of the Spirit, they will be found in his anointing. If we seek strength that lies in his dominion, 
if purity in his conception, if gentleness it appears in his birth. But by his birth he was made like us in all respects, that he might learn to feel our pain. If we see incidentally, this is the Jesus our suffering people need. If we seek redemption, it lies in his passion, if acquittal in his condemnation, if remission of the curse in his cross, if satisfaction in his sacrifice, if purification in his blood, if reconciliation in his descent into hell, if mortification of the flesh in his tomb, if newness of life in his resurrection, if immortality in the same, if inheritance of the heavenly kingdom in his entrance into heaven, if protection, security, abundant supply of all blessings. It's found in him, his kingdom. If untroubled expectation of judgment in the power there is in Jesus Christ to judge. In short, since rich store of every kind of good abound in him, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. And so it's so significant, isn't it, that Calvin opens book three of the Institutes. That's at the end of his exposition of the Apostles' Creed in book two of the Institutes, when he opens book three of the Institutes, he says everything that Jesus Christ has done is of no value whatsoever to us unless we are bonded to him, united to him, brought to be in him by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the one who is the bond of the union and communion of the Father and the Son. The Spirit is the bond of union also between the Son and his people. And in that sense, because Calvin so wonderfully captured the Johannine notion of the teaching of Jesus, that what the Holy Spirit does is show us what belongs to Christ and bring Christ to us then Calvin is certainly, as I want to sense, the theologian of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we too thank you that by your grace and through faith we are found in Christ, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but the righteousness that is ours through faith in Jesus Christ. We want to know him and the power of his resurrection and share the fellowship of his sufferings, being made like him in his death, that we may attain to that final vivification in the glorious resurrection. And all of us who are mature want to take this view. We pray that as we continue to think about the sheer privileges you've given to us in Jesus Christ, that though we look back to a mere mortal man with feet of clay as we've been reminded we may see his finger pointing and then lose sight of that finger and see by the testimony of your spirit our Lord Jesus Christ as our saviour in communion with whom you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and we praise you for this and for our joint fellowship in you in his grace how long have these bottles been up here, Philip? <laughs> They're not open, are they? No. Oh, that's, that's all right. <laughs> they were there the first one. Once. <laughs> I think I left this the last time. <laughs> 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 well, it's a jewel to try first. <laughs>